You know, they tell you that coffee is one of the worst things to drink when you're about to do any kind of public speaking, but uh, I've renounced that this morning. I didn't get quite enough. I was uh, most of the night uh, crying about the West Virginia loss yesterday. So, Although a good thing happened, Oklahoma lost too, so Herschel didn't give me too hard of a time. What are you afraid of? It's a question I want to ask this morning. Uh, And as I pondered it myself, I was immediately taken back to when I was in middle school. I used to be very afraid of R.L. Stein. He was kind of the the Stephen King of middle school literature, if you will. If you don't know who Stephen King is, he's like a scary book author. Uh, So that's as much as I can help you there. But he wrote these books called Goosebumps, right? And I used to read those bad boys. They'd be like 100 pages, which was really long back then. And they just have you on the edge of your seat. That's what I was afraid of then. And uh, as I've got older, fears have have changed a little bit. I mean, when I moved in here, I I discovered I was afraid of snakes. I found one in my basement one day. And I realized, like, man, getting rid of that little guy, he was probably harmless. It's not the easiest thing in the world. That was pretty brutal and gruesome. But uh, I'll spare you the details. Anyhow, I discovered I was afraid of of snakes. I'm, I'm afraid of spiders. Uh, more seriously, I think, I'm, I'm afraid of losing loved ones. There are, there are a myriad of fears, and I think there are degrees of fear. But I want you to, to kind of hold this question. What am I afraid of in your mind this morning, together with another question as we work through our text? And that's going to be, who is Jesus? What am I afraid of, and who is Jesus? If you're new to the valley or just new to rockfish, what we like to do here is go through books of the Bible and try to unpack a little bit of what God has said to us there. And uh, today, where we've made it through the book of Mark a little bit, all the way up to the 35th verse of chapter 4. And so that's where we're going to be, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And to brief you just a little bit on the book to this point, Mark believes and writes to the end of helping persuade us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He writes, so that you might believe that God became a man in the person of Jesus, died for man's sins, and rose from the dead. Mark sets out to persuade us of this by walking us through sort of a highlight reel, if you will. Think Sports Center segment where it just walks you through different segments of the game where there are really big things going on. He walks us through a highlight reel of Jesus' ministry. He shows us that Jesus fulfills prophecy exercises divine authority, forgives sins, advances his kingdom, and ultimately replaces religion with himself. I mean, we've made it through a number of these highlights to this point, and we find ourselves in a most popular story today, the calming of the storm. And I think, sadly, the, the main idea of this particular pericope is often overlooked. I think that the main idea that the account is primarily, it's first and foremost, about the one who is the sovereign and all-powerful Lord of everything. The calming of the storm illustrates Mark's larger purpose of interpreting the historical events theologically so as to show Jesus as God incarnate and to show Jesus' significance for discipleship. If you had trouble with that word incarnate, just think... uh, Incarnitas is how I think of it, right? If you ever go to a Mexican joint, you get carnitas. It's like a meat in there. So it's really incarnate in meat or in the flesh. So Jesus is God in the flesh is what what Mark wants to show us. And he wants to show us Jesus' significance for discipleship. And in other words, we can't understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus 
until we first understand who Jesus is. I think our text this morning will both help us understand both the nature of discipleship and the person of Jesus. We're going to learn that Jesus is God in the flesh and that the essence of discipleship is worshipful, holy fear or faith. I've summarized the, the main idea or our, our one big thing this morning, that, that which I want you to grab a hold of and ponder throughout the sermon and throughout the week as Jesus is the king worthy of worship. Jesus is the king worthy of worship. And we're going to work through the text in just three parts this morning. We're going to work through the calm, the storm, and the question. The calm, the storm, and the question. Before we get started, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would refresh the weary, that you would satisfy the saint. I'm sorry, that you would satisfy the faint, that you would strengthen the saints and that you would redeem the lost. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for being our rest. We thank you for our future in the new heavens and the new earth where your beauty will never again be hidden from us. Lord, we thank you for this gathering wherein we can get a glimpse of your glory and your beauty even now. Father, I pray this morning that you would crush us beneath the weight of your lavish love. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the calm, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him and them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Jesus has spent a a full day teaching in parables from his floating pulpit. And he, he tells his guys, hey, let's go to the other side of the sea. And so they do this fast and furious type exchange, except for uh, they're not jumping from one car to the other. They're jumping from one boat to the other. So Jesus gets from his little floating pulpit into another boat with the 12 disciples. And then there's some other boats with them. And so there are other disciples and maybe they're on his boat too, but they're definitely in other boats as well. And they're going towards the other side. So we've got Jesus and this flow, this flotilla, if you will, going towards the other side of the sea. Flotilla is one of those words I, I learned recently. It's a, it's a fleet of ships or boats. So put that one in the bank. Use it later uh, for your nautical terminology. I like it. This flotilla is moving towards the other side of the sea. And so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a second and picture it with me. Don't fall asleep now. I'm watching. I'll know. Picture it. The sun's starting to clothe its brightness behind a modest garment of the western landscape. Sky is a, is a myriad of brilliant colors, mostly pink and orange. The day has been long. It has been hot. Everyone is tired. A cool breeze floats from the water and gently hugs the sweat against the skin. The smell of salt snuggles comfortably inside of nostrils. And the waves are playing a rhythmic song against the side of the ship. Evening has come. All is right. And Jesus knows what is coming. You can open your eyes now. Jesus knows that the storm is coming. And in fact, he ordained it in eternity past. Yet he says, let's go to the other side. He's deliberately taking the disciples into the tempest. Why? 
I'm going to suggest two reasons. The first being to demonstrate his power and to reorder the disciples' fears and their loves. Jesus is going to demonstrate his power by calming the storm without bracing himself, without rolling up his sleeves, without raising a wand or reciting an incantation. He's going to do it without casting any spells. Jesus is going to calm the storm simply by the power of his word, simply by speaking. He's going to lead the disciples to ask the key question of Mark's book, that question that's underneath every single word that he writes. Who is Jesus? Jesus is going to reorder the disciples' fears and their loves. He's going to show the disciples that they ought not fear the storm, but he who commands the winds and the waves. Jesus is going to teach the disciples that they ought not love their own lives more than he who gives life. See, Jesus is king of the calm. He's in control of their current circumstances, and he is in control of their future circumstances. It's a crucial detail here. That Jesus leads them into the storm. Doesn't take him by surprise. And I think just a really easy application here is that surprises don't surprise God. And so we we shouldn't be alarmed by surprises in our own lives. But rather we should view them as they are. They are divinely ordained moments whereby God is working in the everyday circumstances of our lives to reveal who he is, who we are, and who it is that we need. Trials and difficulties and desperate moments are when God often does his greatest work in our lives. When he brings us to the end of ourselves, when we're driven to him and him alone as our savior and our rescuer is often when we see most clearly. When we feel most deeply. As we'll see today that the disciples will reorder their fears and their loves and have a better understanding of Jesus' person and power when they reach the other side. He's at work in their circumstances. He's at work in your circumstances. He's at work both in the calm and in the storm. And so Jesus, looking to the future, takes the disciples into the tempest. He says, let us go to the other side. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the, st- and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Picture it again now. The song of the waves is now a torrent of chaos as water crashes against the sides of the ship. The winds are pressing up against every man and woman in an angry and unrelenting assault. The sea is filling the ship. And before... Uh, Elliot came along during my, my last year's seminary. Chelsea and I were able to take a cruise. It was one of those really, really big ships. It was, I mean, it was a city on the ocean, unbelievably large. There was like a mall in there and a movie theater and ice rink, just craziness. And it's all like on the water. It's wild. I can't even believe it's possible, but it is. So like a city on the ocean. And I remember one night in particular, we experienced what, what I imagine would be the equivalent of like air turbulence, but on the sea. I mean, I'm not even sure it was a storm, but it was enough to rock the boat, enough to, to, to fill me with motion sickness, maybe even scare me a little bit if I was being honest. What I found, though, was as I walked the halls and tried to find, like, the center of the ship where it would be rocking the least or where I would feel the most comfortable, was that the crew was not the least bit scared. 
In fact, they hardly realized like anything was going on. I'm like, hey, how do you guys deal with this? Like you're, you know, mixing drinks or you're carrying food and I can hardly stand up. And they're like, oh, you know, kind of like they're immune to the motion sickness. Smile at me. And they say, hey, we, we really didn't notice, but it'll be over soon. Don't worry about it. Just completely calm. I share this to, to make a point. Most of those folks that were with Jesus were experienced fishermen and had more than likely endured a storm or two. Yet we discover that they are filled with fear as the boat is filled with water. And this is a terrifying and terrible storm. They come, usually it's something they could handle, right? But the storm is bad enough that they go to Jesus. But they find, in verse 38, that Jesus is, in the stern, asleep on a cushion. I mean, put yourself in the disciples' shoes here. The boat's filling with water. You think that the kraken is about to make an appearance and swallow everything up and every one up. And, and Jesus is just straight chilling on a cushion. I mean, wait, he's not just hanging out on the couch. He's sleeping. I mean, don't they have to think at this point, maybe those folks a few chapters back were right. Maybe he is just crazy, just out of his mind. I do think for for us here and, and for them, maybe they didn't appreciate it at the time. So we get a picture of Jesus' humanity. I mean, we know that Jesus is the third person in the blessed triunity that is our one God. We know he's one person with two natures, that he is fully each of those natures. In other words, we know that he's one person that is fully divine and fully human. And how that works all together boggles our minds, is mysterious, and is true. But I think often we we only think of Jesus as a suffering servant headed to the cross or as risen king who will return. And very rarely do we think of Jesus as normal dude. What I mean is this. Jesus was just like us. He was just like you. He knows what it is to have bad things happen. He knows what it is like to be hungry, to be thirsty, and to be exhausted. So much so that you don't really have time to sleep. You have to catch some Z's on the boat. He's able to sympathize with us because he was made like us. He has in every respect been tempted as we are, but is without sin. What a great comfort it should be to you that when you are tempted or you are facing trials, that Jesus understands you, that he's been there. It's a great comfort to see Jesus' humanity here. But I imagine to the disciples it was a little bit dumbfounding. The guy is asleep during the storm of the century. But we should notice this. This whole sleeping on a cushion thing during a storm should remind us of another story. Sounds very similar to Jonah chapter 1, and it's supposed to. And if you remember, Jonah's, uh, he ought to be headed towards Nineveh to declare the word of the Lord. That's where God told him to go. But instead of obeying God's command, he heads the other direction to Tarshish. He basically goes to the equivalent of an airport and says, I'll take the first ticket to the farthest place away from here. So he's on a boat on his way to Tarshish, and like Jesus, he's with seasoned sailors. When all of a sudden, a great wind is hurled by the Lord upon the sea. That's how the text says it. And a mighty tempest or storm rises up, threatening to break the boat apart. 
the sailors with him, they try some different stuff. They call out to their gods and nothing they do seems to help the situation. And eventually the captain of the ship goes down underneath and finds Jonah asleep. And he wakes him up and he says to him basically, hey, what are you doing? We're all about to die and you're down here asleep? Get up and call on your God to save us. Literally, verse 6 reads, perhaps your God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Notice the word perish. And so we see the same feelings or sentiment of the pagan sailors with Jonah in Jesus' disciples. And we read what they say. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Haven't we all felt like the sailors? Haven't we all felt like the disciples? Haven't we all asked God, do you even care? I think we've all felt this. Everything seems to be going wrong. You're sinking. And God seems to be asleep, absent, or unaware. The disciples were saying, if you loved us, you wouldn't let us go through this. If you loved us, we wouldn't be about to sink. If you loved us, you wouldn't allow us or be letting us to endure this deadly peril. It's easy for the disciples to confidently follow Jesus in the calm, but this storm has shaken their faith. It's a little bit funny because I think the opposite is true for us, typically. I think usually when trials come, we find it easier to pursue and press into relationship with God. We pray more diligently, more passionately. However, for us, when things are ordinary and calm, we find ourselves feeling spiritually dry. We pray less and we feel less. I mean, of course, you run to Jesus when everything is going wrong. But do you run to him with the same urgency when everything is going right? I think it's easy and natural to run to Jesus when you are in the storm and at the end of yourself. But do you run to him when you're in the calm and all is well? Yeah, your faith is typically strong in the storm when things are bad for you. And you're pressing into God. But let me ask you, how is your faith in the calm? The disciples were terrified. So they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. The storm stills when Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks to the winds and the waves like a master may speak to his dog. They obey him. I mean, everything comes to a dead calm. Have you ever seen water that is just like smooth as glass? No waves at all. You can, you can see your reflection in it. And this is the type of calm that Jesus brings here. And perhaps... It's in the midst of this calm that the disciples, the disciples remember Psalm 107, verses 28 through 30, which read this way. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. 
And they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. I think in an instant, the disciples are confronted with Jesus' infinite power. They're coming to grips with the fact that Jesus isn't just someone who has power, but that he is power itself. And that anyone or anything in the whole universe that has any power has that power on loan from Jesus himself. They were learning this fact. That Jesus is king, not just of the calm, not just of the storm, but he is the king of power itself. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking when Jesus turned and said to them, why are you so afraid? And they must have thought, what do you mean, why are we afraid? We were afraid we were going to drown. Actually, we were afraid that you didn't love us because we believe that you're, you're powerful. We're following you. But we're afraid because we thought that you might not love us because if you loved us, you wouldn't have let these things happen to us. You wouldn't have taken us into this storm. It didn't even seem like you cared. I think Jesus' question to them has underneath of it this thought. He's telling them that their premise is wrong. He's saying, you should know better. I allow the people that I love to go through difficulties. You have no reason to panic. Jesus is is saying to them, you should not be afraid. Because your faith ought not be in ships or circumstances or in yourself, but in me. Jesus is letting them know that even though they might not understand why they would need to go through the storm, that they can trust him. Likewise, we are often not able to perceive or understand the reasons for evil or suffering or injustice, but we can know that God permits it for a good reason. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga illustrates it this way. He says, if you look in a pup tent for a St. Bernard, really big dog, right? And you don't see the St. Bernard in the tent, it's reasonable to assume that there's no St. Bernard in your tent. But if you look into your pup tent for a noceum, which is an extremely small insect insect with a bite completely out of proportion to its size. So you can't see it, but you can feel its bite. If you look into your tent for a noceum and you don't see any, it is not reasonable to assume that they aren't there. Because after all, no one can see them. Many assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil, they would be accessible to our minds, more like St. Bernard's than like noceums. But why should that be the case? In other words, just because you can't see or understand God's reasons for allowing or bringing about a particular circumstance, it does not mean that there is not a good reason. I think all of us have gone through or are going through or will go through some kind of suffering in this life. Let's assume that you are in the midst of of grieving some loved one or, or some terrible circumstance. Does it really help for somebody to offer to you the reason for that? To tell you, hey, there's a reason for this and X, Y, and Z, this is exactly why this happened to you, so, hey, don't worry about it. I'd argue that that doesn't help at all. Because even if we can point out the reason, we know all the reasons for suffering, it doesn't eliminate the pain that is being experienced. The pain is real. 
And as Christians, we ought mourn with those who mourn rather than offering them cliches and platitudes. We should enter into their suffering as Christ has entered into our suffering. You do better to hold someone's hand and cry with them than to say, God has a reason for this. Don't trivialize the suffering of others. Enter into it. Bear the burden with them as Christ has bore our burdens on the cross. Ultimately, Jesus is king of everything, and we can trust him to act in accord with his character, which is revealed to us in Holy Scripture to be nothing less than entirely good. God is omnibenevolent. Thus, even when faced with tremendous suffering and evil, we need not be afraid, for our God and King has promised us that we will never be separated from his love. We can trust him. We can trust him. Let's look at the question. The storm has come, it was stilled, and yet the disciples' fear is stirred. Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Why are they filled with even more fear now that the storm has been calmed? I think because Jesus is as unmanageable as the storm. The storm had immense power. They couldn't control it. Yet Jesus has infinitely more power. So they have even less control over him. They're learning more about this Jesus and are led to ask, who then is this? Imagine the scene to be a little bit like uh, the show Undercover Boss. Have any of you seen that? Uh, basically, the boss or owner of a valuable company, they'll change their appearance and they'll take an entry-level position. So maybe think CEO of McDonald's working the drive through for a little bit. And typically, at the conclusion of the show, what happens is the boss reveals himself to the astonishment of his unknowing co-workers. <gasps> oh no, he's really the CEO. He's not a drive through worker. It blows everybody's minds. I think the same sort of thing is going on here. These guys have been hanging out with Jesus. They feel like they, they know him pretty well. And they've seen him cast out demons and healed the sick. But to command wind and waves, to control nature, that's something only God does. Only God exercises power over nature. Who then, who then is this? Imagine when the waves stopped, they were filled with fear as the sailors in the story of Jonah. Remember, Jonah tells them to throw him into the sea. And once they throw Jonah overboard, which I imagine was probably kind of funny, like a group of guys just take one dude, throw him into the sea, and then everything stops and the storm's calmed. Once they throw him in, the storm vanishes. And we read in verse 16 of Jonah chapter 1, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The fear of the sailors of Jonah's God, the God of Israel, that is Jesus, leads them to worship. Their fear of the storm matured into holy fear that is worship of God. Genuine faith is expressed in and animated by a reverential awe. And this is the basic meaning of the biblical idea of the fear of God. Unless there is a personal awareness of the awesome and majestic sovereignty of God, it is impossible to have a meaningful faith existing in your heart. The stories are deliberately similar. 
The question that Mark is inviting us to ask is this. Will the disciples' fear mature into holy fear and worship of Jesus? When the storm was stilled in Jonah, the sailors knew it was God and worshipped. When the storm is stilled by Jesus, the disciples ask, Who is this? Mark is inviting us to answer their question in light of the whole of his book. And to conclude along with the centurion in chapter 15, verse 39, Truly this man was the Son of God. It's remarkable how God inspires Mark to make use of both the book of Jonah and Peter's eyewitness testimony to write such a theologically rich account of Jesus calming the storm. I mean, Mark uses a language that is parallel and almost identical to the language that's used in the book of Jonah. Both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat. Both boats are overtaken by a storm. The description of the storms are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep. In both stories, the sailors wake up the sleeper and say to him, Hey, we're going to die. And in both cases, there was a miraculous divine intervention and the sea was calmed. Further, in both stories, the sailors then become even more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Two almost identical stories with just one difference. In the midst of the storm in Jonah, he says to the sailors, in effect, hey, there's only one thing to do. It's to throw me overboard. That'll calm the storm. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. And so they throw him into the sea. Which doesn't happen in Mark. Or does it? Keller writes. I think Mark is showing us that the stories aren't actually different when you stand back a bit. And look at them with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. He's referring to himself. He's saying, I am the true Jonah. He meant this. Someday I'm going to calm all storms. Still, always, I'm going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, kill death. And how can he do that? He can do it only because... When he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm. Under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and of death, the waves of God's wrath. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us. The storm of eternal justice. The storm of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm that Jesus entered into, it wasn't calmed. Not until it swept him away. Friends, if the sight of Jesus bowing his head into the ultimate storm isn't burned into the core of your being. You'll never learn to trust God. If it is burned into your mind, you'll never again say, God, don't you care? And you'll know that he won't abandon you. Because he didn't abandon you in that ultimate storm. Because he stayed on the cross. Die the death you deserve. You can take heart and know that he's not going to abandon you in the much smaller storms that you're now experiencing. Jesus took the disciples through the storm not to tell them there's a reason for this. Or God works all things to the good, though that's true. Took them not through the storm not to give them an explanation, but to give them reverential awe. To give them holy fear faith. Jesus took them into the storm not so they could know God won't give you more than you can handle 
but so they would learn that they can handle nothing without God. The sailors in Jonah knew they needed an act of God to save them. He acted. They worshipped. The disciples in Mark thought Jesus didn't care that they were perishing. God acted. They feared. And they asked, who then is this? I think N.T. Wright's correct in pointing out that this storm scene is ultimately a, a miniature story of the cross. In the story of the cross, we have Jesus with the disciples going on about their business. We have the forces of evil at work, not in a storm, but in the minds of sinful men to arrange for the capture and killing of Jesus. We have Jesus not asleep on a pillow, but slumped on a cross. And we hear his voice as he sits in that ultimate storm for us. He says, why are you afraid? Don't you believe? And on the third day, the storm is stilled. The tomb is empty and great fear comes upon them all. And the question hangs in the air. Who then is this? We have our answer. And they would have theirs. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King worthy of worship. Friends, we need an act of God to save us. You need an act of God to save you from the punishment your sins have earned you. God cares. Cares that you're perishing. Cares that you're suffering. And he's acted to save you by his death, burial, and resurrection. Do you still not believe? Who then is this? This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The King worthy of worship. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would shipwreck our self-righteous, self-dependent selfishness with the storm of your mercy and your love. I ask that you would bring us to the end of ourselves so that we realize we can handle no circumstance in life, calm nor storm, do no thing, find no satisfaction apart from a personal relationship with you. Jesus, we come to you because you're worthy of worship. Because you've entered into and understand our pain. Because you've dealt with our sin. Because you love us, we come. Lord, you are our king. And we worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.